Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me again today a popular figure on the podcast, <laughs> Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, who, as you all know, is the Obstetric Anesthesia Director uh, for the Fellowship in Obstetric Anesthesia at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and uh, a big friend of the show. Jacqueline, thanks for coming back up. As always, thanks for having me, Jed. And today we are going to talk uh, about the second half of the podcast that we started the last time Jacqueline was on, and that's problems during pregnancy and delivery. So this is part two of problems during pregnancy and delivery. Let's jump right in, uh, and let's start off, Jacqueline, with um, talking about hematologic issues that pregnant women can face uh, at term. So what do we think about in terms of the hematologic system? Great. So there's, of course, a lot of interesting topics, and I tried to pick things that were interesting and relevant, and as usual, we have a lot to discuss. So let's jump right in with sickle cell anemia. So otherwise, for brevity, I'm going to just discuss homozygous sickle cell disease. So an extremely common uh, genetic disorder globally, and there's reported um, incidents of greater than 300,000 new cases every year around the world. So for um, uh, baseline purposes, right, it's a hemoglobinopathy that is characterized by a single point mutation in the hemoglobin A gene, which is a substitution for glutamic acid, uh, for valine, which is a, a common and popular test question. Um, and so what this really means clinically is that the uh, hemoglobin cell, or sorry, the, our PRBC cell, instead of being that nice bioconcave shape, um, it can turn into a sickle shape um, in hypoxic and cold environments. And that leads to occlusion of capillaries and microvasculature, which then ultimately uh, and, uh, results in tissue hypoxia and infarction and then manifests as a sickle crisis. So what does it have to do with pregnancy? And unfortunately, um, sickle cell disease often worsens during the pregnant period. And that really is because there's a difficulty or mismatch in um, compensating for those increased demands of pregnancy, like increased PRBC mass, increased cardiac output, increased uh, O2 consumption, and of course, pregnancy is a pro-zombotic state, and then there's the pain associated with the labor and delivery process. So unfortunately, sickle cell disease is not improved during pregnancy. On top of that, there's increased risk of not only maternal, but fetal complications such as IUGR, fetal loss, placental abruption, infection, increased frequency of vasoclusive crises, and the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And um, important um, contributors to maternal mortality in patients with sickle cell disease include sepsis, venal thromboembolism complications, and heart failure. Great. So you said at the beginning we were just going to talk about homozygous sickle cell disease. Correct. And so I think that's great. Just to be clear, uh, the, these are people who have both alleles, so they have the full disease as opposed to people who are carriers who can yes. have some sickling, but it's much less, and I assume that the uh, effect on pregnancy is much less. It's much, yes. It's better, uh, patients with sickle cell traits, for example, often have normal pregnancies and normal outcomes compared to non-sickle cell, sickle cell trait patients with sickle cell um, SS or the homozygous form is what we're discussing today. Great. So, yeah. All right. So great. You, great. So now let's talk about how do you assess uh, these patients? What do you want to know in a patient who comes in with sickle cell disease? Uh, great. So I think first and foremost, these patients definitely should be managed by a multidisciplinary team, probably including uh, hematologists, maternal fetal medicine, uh, possibly uh, adult ICU teams if they're admitted to the ICU, and definitely anesthesiologists, of course, because we often participate in their care. So if we go from a system-by-system system perspective, we look at the CNS in patients with sickle cell disease who are pregnant. They often are at risk for cerebral vascular accidents or CVA um, or already have had a CVA so they have pre-existing neurologic deficits and it's certainly important to take into account those before any invasive procedures. Um, if we look at the cardiovascular and respiratory systems, there is an increased prevalence of pulmonary hypertension in patients with sickle cell disease, probably related to chronic vasoclusive crises in the pulmonary vasculature and as we learned at the last podcast there was again a mismatch between 
reducing the physiologic demands of pregnancy and pulmonary hypertension. In addition, um, as I'm sure many people are aware, uh, pregnant patients with sickle cell disease will probably experience an acute chest syndrome uh, crisis or event during pregnancy, um, which these patients can present with tachypnea, chest pain, cough, and shortness of breath, uh, potentially a new chest X, uh, new infiltrate on chest X-ray, rather. Um, and the complicated thing is it may overlap with pneumonia, which is, again, a contributor to maternal mortality in patients with sickle cell disease. So it's often Let me just ask you, yeah. sorry, what is the, um, how, how likely is it that a patient would have acute chest crisis during pregnancy? I would say probably a moderate chance. Again, depending on the source you look at, there's anywhere between uh, 7 to 20% incidence of acute chest syndrome in patients with homo- homozygous sickle cell disease. Okay. So it's, it's possible, but uh, it's still the majority of patients won't have it. Um, correct, okay. yes. All right. Um, and so our main states of therapy for um, acute chest syndrome uh, during pregnancy in patients with sickle cell, um, we want to make sure they're oxygenated, hydrated, avoiding acidosis, and you know, potential exchange trans- transfusions. Um, in our hematologic system, in vasoclusive crisis is actually much more common during pregnancy in patients with sickle cell. So anywhere from 27 to 50% of pregnant patients will experience a vasoclusive crisis. And that, of course, will occur when hemoglobin S, which is the sickled um, hemoglobin, is more than 50% of the total hemoglobin concentration. And the vasoclusive crisis are often precipitated by maternal dehydration, hypotension, hypothermia, or acidosis. And I assume this is essentially when you start getting blockage of vessels leading to ischemia of tissue. Correct, exactly. Um, so the treatment uh, right now is still mainly supportive. Opioids are still a mainstay. Interestingly, um, epidurals can be therapeutic in vasoclusive crises of the legs. So again, that's where we might be able to participate and offer some of our expertise. And of course, we also uh, must rule out sepsis. Um, and the reason the epidurals are effective for that lower extremity, I assume, is because of the vasodilation. Vasodilation, okay. correct, exactly. Um, uh, Important to note is there's no really evidence or uh, really good trials to support prophylactic uh, PRBC transfusions uh, packed by blood cells. And depending on what source you read, um, a hemoglobin of 8 is probably okay for baseline or vaginal delivery. Hemoglobin of 10 is probably okay for C-section. Um, and so those important numbers to possibly you know, keep in mind or, or be aware of. Um, and I think, again, a sort of underappreciated um, aspect of care for these patients is that IV access may be potentially really difficult. And uh, we have actually a sickle cell um, program here at UIC, so we often see a lot of these patients. So one of the main things is when they're coming in for a crisis is where to get IV access, and I think it's often very challenging. And, of course, um, the development of rare antibodies if they've been transfused a lot during their lifetime and kind of sorting out that situation. Absolutely. So this would be a patient who you would want to, these patients, if they come in, you'd want to have, get a type and screen done early so you can have blood uh, if you need it. They've gone through that process. Correct, yes. Um, And then from the obstetric point of view, one thing I really wanted to highlight is that their risk of preeclampsia and eclampsia is uh, uh, generously elevated compared to patients without sickle cell. So it's an important, I think, management aspect certainly, you know, will be part of that delivery planning process when the time comes. And, of course, the mainstays of therapy for that are still magnesium, blood pressure control, and appropriate fluid balance. Um, So while we're on that topic, when it comes to delivery planning for these patients. Of course, um, if vaginal delivery is an option, that should be pursued. As we can probably surmise, um, the increased risk of sickling during that painful process is probably increased. So labor analgesia, definitely useful. That vasodilation you mentioned earlier um, can be very therapeutic for these uh, patients. And of course, if a C-section is needed, which unfortunately they may or may not be increased risk for that, um, both neuraxial anesthetics and general anesthetics have been described Really, the mainstays is, again, maintenance of intravascular volume, appropriate hemoglobins, um, normal oxia, normal thermia. And what we do here is sometimes, especially if they're a chronic opioid patient or very opioid tolerant, we um, may elect to leave a lumbar epidural in post-op to help manage the pain for one or two days, which we find to be useful. 
Sounds good. All right. So let's talk about a common thing that comes up yeah, both great. on tests and certainly yeah. I imagine on the on the labor and delivery floor, which is <laughs> yeah. thrombocytopenia, right? So it comes up all the time. Do you all put the time. an epidural in? What, depend, what are the platelets? Are they falling or not? So how do you work through or think about a woman with thrombocytopenia? Great. I think it's a great question. So again, we'll focus on uh, things that are um, common but uncommon. Um, so the first one we'll talk about is idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, purpura sorry, or um, also can be referred to as autoimmune thrombocytopenia purpura, which surprisingly in my readings really has a pretty low incidence of 0.1 to 0.2% uh, during pregnancy, although I feel like I see it way more often. Um, however, is the... It, uh, is it 0.1 or 0.01? 0.01. Okay. Thank you. So 0.01 better. to 0.02%. So it's actually it's very rare. It's actually very rare um, compared to the other ones that we'll discuss next. Um, so its main mechanism during pregnancy, why they get thrombocytopenic is um, IgG antibodies are responsible for platelet destruction, but not necessarily impairing platelet platelet function. So what you'll commonly see or a common scenario is that there's a platelet count of less than 100,000 really antenatally or early on in the pregnancy. And um, again, depending on your source and your institution, of course, our other obstetric providers, um, there's rarely treatment required if their platelets are made between 20 and 30,000. That's, I think, very institution-dependent and provider-dependent. Um, however, things you can do to try to raise the platelets during the delivery period, um, prednisone or IVIG can be timed uh, relative to when they are scheduled to deliver, um, which is, again, a more collaborative discussion between obstetricians, hemogs, and, of course, us if the patient would like an epidural. Um, but there's often no really role for platelet transfusion per se. And in that's because of, if you give the platelets, they're just going to destruct. Yep. Perfect. Yes. So in terms of for us, again, do we do an epidural or not? Right. Especially if the patient would you know like one for labor or for a C-section, um, it's really you know a discussion between the anesthesia provider and the patient. But if the platelets are really above maybe seventy-five, eighty thousand, and they're asymptomatic, it's probably okay. If the platelets are around that fifty thousand mark, you know you really start wanting to weigh the risk benefits, and then really below that, it's a it's a hairy decision and needs to be individualized certainly. Okay, so most people you think would go ahead with it if they're above 75,000. Now, what about this question of, you know, let's say it's 80,000, but right. two hours before it was 110,000. Is that different? Uh I would say if the patient is stable, right, there's no signs they're developing something else too, like preeclampsia or they have other ongoing coagulopathies and aren't on anticoagulants and if everything's proceeding along as would expect it is probably okay. Um, you know, I think especially when you get into maternal decompensation or certainly uh, issues with the fetal heart tones, like if they're starting to be uh, questionable, then I would probably say the benefit would be in placing a neuraxial versus going off to sleep with a general, which uh, if, if it came down to that, which is certainly more risky. Now, so another question, and I would just let's put out there that, you know, you yeah, obviously go with your own institution's, uh, you know, regulations or, or protocols around this. Mm -hmm. If, you know, there's a rule about when you want to go, then you want to stick to that and use those levels. But it is interesting that I think different providers have different levels. Now, let me ask you this, though, Jackie. Yes. What about um, if you have a patient who they have an acceptable platelet level for you, and mm -hmm. so you place an epidural, and then they have right. their um, they have their labor, they have their child, and then right. you're getting ready to take it out, and the platelet level comes back at ten thousand. Are you going to take it out? Definitely not. I would probably leave it in, uh, repeat the platelets at some some interval, you know, maybe six, eight, twelve hours later, kind of you know, depending on the, the clinical scenario. And when the platelets are in the upswing, I would probably then pull it then. Okay. Or it might be time to consider the steroids or IVIG to improve the uh, the platelet number per se and then pull it. But I, I think it's a great question that we not only be concerned about when we're placing it, but also pulling the epidurals at a time when you can cause an epidural hematoma, theoretically. Gotcha. Okay, great. So um, we talked about kind of the management around the epidural. Are there other um, causes of thrombocytopenia other than ITP? 
Oh, yes. Um, so gestational thrombocytopenia has a higher incidence during pregnancy, 8%. It's generally described as a mild, again, asymptomatic thrombocytopenia with platelet numbers in the nine, you know, 90,000 to 100,000 levels. And it often occurs late in, in the pregnancy. So it's often a diagnosis of exclusion. And sometimes you have to you know, rule that's ITP or related to preeclampsia first before you can declare it gestational thrombocytopenia. But in general, it's safer regional safer regional anesthesia and um, not as concerning as the other diagnoses. Um, another uh, cause for thymocytopenia during pregnancy is, of course, thymocytopenia associated with preeclampsia and HELP. Um, the pathogenesis of why the platelets decline is uh, not you know, well delineated yet and it's probably multifactorial um, in nature. Um, but if the, if the thrombocytopenia is mild or the platelets are not falling dramatically, there's really no treatment needed and the benefit of neuraxial is probably beneficial. Um, thrombocytopenia associated with help is slightly more concerning. Again, this is where I think where platelet trending comes into play and there's no um, one way to trend platelets. Like should you measure them every six hours, every eight hours? You know, that's very up in the air and institution dependent. Um, and one should be worried about DIC, which is definitely associated with preeclampsia as well and may complicate thrombocytopenia or maybe a, a sign of thrombocytopenia um, or the vice versa. Great. What about, um, you know, drug-induced thrombocytopenia? That can Great. be yeah, I just really wanted to briefly mention that, especially with the new guidelines that are going to that are coming out that are guiding uh, anticoagulation therapy or really a veno venous thromboembolism prophylaxis during pregnancy. So uh, providers may come across this, but in particular, um, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia for now, luckily, is rare during pregnancy. Um, it is associated with IgG platelet factor four antibody complexes that bind and activate platelets and actually increase adhesions and release of procoagulants. So even though it's a thrombocytopenia, it's actually a prothrombotic state. And then depending on your clinical suspicion, and there are a number of risk stratification models that one could use, but if you thought a patient had heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, a treatment model would be to obviously stop the heparin and switch to another anticoagulant, such as, for example, Fundaparinox or, or Argatraban, which have different uh, dosing models during pregnancy. Okay, great. Um, you mentioned that uh, pregnant women are at some amount of increased risk for DIC. Um, what do we think about around DIC? Why are they at increased risk and how do we treat it or how do we deal with it? Um, well, there are some particular reasons why pregnant women would develop DIC, again, including preeclampsia, placental abruption, sepsis, uh, retained um, products of conception or a retained, uh, you know, uh, intrauterine dead fetus, amniotic fluid embolism, and postpartum hemorrhage. So at some point in one's uh, care of pregnant patients, they'll probably come across this. And we should probably, Jackie, sorry, I should have asked you at first. I mean, let's just, in case people out there aren't familiar, Let's just do a basic overview. What is DIC? Yeah. So DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation, uh, is abnormal activation of the coagulation system. And I always have to look at that cascade every single time. Um, but essentially, this abnormal activation of the coagulation system leads to uh, large amounts of um, thrombin formation, depletion and consumption of coagulation factors, activation of the fibrinolytic system, and hemorrhage. So there's formation of clot and then rapid destruction of clot that consumes our coagulation factors, which then leads to more bleeding, essentially. Gotcha. So in pregnancy, in the scenarios that um, I had mentioned, such as abruption and AFE um, and whatnot, um, laboratory findings you may expect to find um, are thrombocytopenia, as we had mentioned previously, decreased fibrinogen increases in our PT, PTT, and INR, and probably elevated levels of D-dimer, which are based on elevated in pregnant patients anyways and may not be sort of as sensitive in detection of DSE, but um, that can be measured. In uh, pregnancy, per se, when we uh, occur or come across a patient with DIC, the main goals are really treating the underlying cause. So if the cause is retained products of conception, removing that, you know, by either male extraction or, you know, under surgical conditions is appropriate. Vaccine to replace the depleted coagulation factors. And, of course, if the patient has other uh, issues going on, um, 
either you know hypotension or respiratory distress. But obviously, you need to treat those as needed. All right. So we've talked a lot about hematologic uh, kind of issues that come up. Let's move on and talk about hypertension. Now, this is, you know, a lot in the news lately, both uh, in terms of Works. pregnancy, but also just in general, the, the levels at which we call someone hypertensive are changing. So how is right. it different in pregnancy? What is hypertension and what kinds of hypertension happen during pregnancy? Great. Um, and again, this is a, a really important topic. So um, we'll try to cover the highlights, of course. So first we'll cover gestational hypertension, which is blood pressure elevation after um, Tony Vifa gestation, but in the absence of proteinuria or other systemic findings that would suggest preeclampsia, for example. It often resolves by 12 weeks postpartum, and really the outcome and, and management is relatively similar to normal tensive pregnancies. Um, chronic hypertension, for example, on the other hand, is hypertension that predates pregnancy or is before that 20-week mark. Uh, chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia is, uh, as I'm talking with my MFM colleagues, a little bit of a um, not uh, straightforward uh, diagnosis. Because, um, for example, if a patient already has proteinuria and hypertension at baseline, and then they're hypertensive and have proteinuria after the 20-week mark, is it a worsening of their chronic hypertension? Is it pre, uh, superimposed preeclampsia? And um, it's likely, a, a, not luckily, sorry, it is a um, diagnostic challenge for sure. And certainly this is where baseline, baseline labs you know, at the beginning of pregnancy is very useful to try to trend for the most part. And there is some suggestion, again, based on some literature, that um, these patients, chronic hypertension with superposed preeclampsia may have possible worse um, maternal morbidity compared to other forms of hypertension. Okay. So the more worrisome hypertension, as you said, is hypertension associated with preeclampsia. So how, how common is that? So preeclampsia, and depending on um, the country that is surveyed, uh, may have an incidence of about 1% to 8% of uh, pregnant women uh, will, would develop preeclampsia. Um, but even though it has a, if I would call it a relatively low incidence, it's really a second cause of maternal mortality worldwide, uh, one of the five leading causes of maternal mortality in the developed world. And um, according to the uh, work from the uh, California uh, Maternal Quality Collaborative, um, patients with preeclampsia and their associated uh, negative outcomes, there is a good to moderate chance that these poor outcomes we'll discuss uh, coming up next here are actually modifiable, meaning there's something we can do during their uh, antenatal period or labor course that might change their outcome. I think it's an important point to highlight. That's great. And so how, how do we define preeclampsia? Great. So in 2013-14, ACOG changed their, their definitions. So there's preeclampsia without severe features, which is a blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90 at least four hours apart in a patient with previously normal blood pressures after 20 weeks of gestation. Um, preeclampsia with severe features is a systolic blood pressure of greater than 160 or diastolic of greater than 110, again, at least four hours apart after that 20 week of gestation mark. Um, you no longer need a certain degree of proteinuria to have severe preeclampsia, which was part of the previous diagnosis. If you have hypertension and new proteinuria after the 20 week mark, um, you have preeclampsia. But if you have elevated pressures, but you don't have proteinuria, use other things that will get you the diagnosis of preeclampsia with with severe features. For example, thrombocytopenia, abnormal elevated enzymes, or right upper quadrant pain that's not associated with other diagnoses, progressive renal dysfunction, a, uh, which can be described as seam creatinine of greater than 1.1 or a doubling of their baseline, pulmonary edema, or new cerebral, cerebral or visual disturbances. Great. Now let me ask you a question, Jack. Jack. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that gestational hypertension is a blood fe- pressure Correct. elevation after 20 weeks in the Correct. absence of proteinuria or other systemic findings. Correct. That sounds to me the same as preeclampsia without severe features, which is that we're saying is a pressure of 140 over 90 or greater uh, twice, at least four hours apart in a patient who was normal tensive before 20 weeks. 
That's correct. So if you have, so generally those patients will get a, a, a workup, if you will. So they will get things like a PC ratio um, and all these other uh laboratory values like platelets and, um, sorry, um, uh, liver, enzyme. Enzyme, liver enzymes, so on and so forth. So if they do, so if they do have hypertension and a new onset proteinuria, they have preeclampsia. Um, if their pressure is in that one greater than 140, 190 range, it's without severe features. Okay. But I mean, I guess it, what's the difference between preeclampsia without severe features and just regular gestational hypertension? Proteinuria. So you do have to have proteinuria. Correct. Okay, so if you don't have severe, so to have preeclampsia without severe features, you have to have a high blood pressure and proteinuria. But to have, but to have uh, preeclampsia with severe features, you could have proteinuria and extra high blood pressure, or you could have the extra high blood pressure and one of those other things you mentioned. Correct. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So what's the what's the pathophysiology of of preeclampsia? Sure. Obviously, a very complex discussion, um, but to to try to simplify as much as I can for the uh, essence of the podcast, in a normal pregnancy, there is a balance between um, uh, vasodilators, vasoconstrictors, and platelet activators. So, for example, in normal pregnancy, your platelet thromboxane A2 and endothelial prostacyclins, which is platelet inhibitors and vasodilators, the balance between those two favors prostacyclin, which is platelet inhibitors and vasodilators. Um, and those two things regulate platelet aggregation and peripheral vasoreactivity and ultimately leads to nice vasculature development within the placenta and good placental blood flow. So in preeclampsia, one of the first dysfunctions is the development of the the arteries and the spiral arteries in the placenta. That leads to placental dysfunction. So this abnormal vascular remodeling in the uterus and the placenta leads to decreased maternal blood supply to the placenta, which leads to hypoxia. This hypoxic insult leads to oxidative stress and then release of inflammatory mediators. That leads to things like um, activation of cyclooxygenase and inhibition of prostacyclin, which again is, is a vasodilating uh, mediator. And then there's this imbalance um, between your thromboxane A2 and prostacyclins, which favors systemic vasoconstriction, more placenta hypoxia, more release of inflammatory mediators into the circulation, and so this downward uh, downward spiral as the gestation develops. So globally, there's generalized endothelial dysfunction, and then that leads to the clinical manifestation of disease like hypertension and proteinuria. Okay, great. That was a nice overview. Thanks, Jacqueline. So then wh- how do we manage it? What do we need to think of from the, in terms of the anesthetic uh, management yeah. of this? Um, again, similar to the sickle cells, kind of system-by-system system, uh, evaluation, but I did want to highlight a couple of things, um, including that the hypertension management, which is something that we can do to help manage. And also, we uh, in their treatment algorithm, which I'll get into next, we are actually kind of a second-line uh, provider that helps escalate the uh, management of, of hypertension, um, uh, hyper, hypertensive crisis in these patients. So, for example, um, if, the, if these patients present to our floor and they have pressures in greater than 160 over 110 for more than a sustained period of 15 minutes, um, really the ACOG recommends that we try to manage these pressures within 30 to 60 minutes of confirmed sustained elevated hypertension. And that's really to reduce the risk of maternal stroke. So, first line treatments would be um, oral nifedipine if they don't have an intravenous access or um, intravenous labetalol, which is quickly escalated. So, for example, you would administer 20 milligrams labetalol. The pressure is still not decreased, 40 milligrams, then 80 milligrams, about 10 to 20 minutes apart. And then, after, for example, after you've exhausted the 80 milligrams labetalol, you would switch to another agent, typically, typically hydralazine. And then that's where the ACOG committee opinion recommends that then you start consulting uh, other experts like maternal fetal medicine, internal adult internal medicine, and anesthesia which we are specifically listed on their uh, list of people they would start bringing in to help treat these patients. And so what would uh, you recommend? Let's say that they've got a woman, she's, uh, you know, blood pressure is 180 over 120. Sure. And uh, they've said, we've already given her 80 of IV labetalol and, you know, 10, 20 of, of hydralazine and, and it hasn't 
worked. And we and so the, the algorithm says call anesthesia, so we're calling right. you. What should we do? <laughs> so um, probably consider if the, the patient and the fetus is stable, I'd probably consider transferring to an adult ICU setting, intravenous, uh, good intravenous access, primary arterial line, and really starting a, uh, a, a continuous infusion of maybe labetalol. Unfortunately, you can use things like sodium nitroprusside, you know, which has um, negative uh, side effects associated with that, but really starting more aggressive vasodilatory treatments. And then, of course, if the blood pressure is severely out of control and the maternal fetal status starts to deteriorate, then probably want to start thinking about delivery planning. Okay. That's a really great question. Thanks for asking. Great. All right. And then, so we've been talking about preeclampsia. What makes it become eclampsia? So eclampsia is in the evolution uh, or the development of convulsions with or without a coma um, related to preeclampsia with severe features. So I think one important point to note about an eclamptic seizure, it doesn't necessarily indicate to run to the OR and deliver. Certainly, if that's what your obstetrician is recommending, yes, you know, our role is not to you know, try to argue with that at, at the time of, of the decision, but not necessarily you don't necessarily have to. And of course, it involves a, um, a bedside evaluation between obstetricians and us. But really want to do is, of course, uh, support the cardiorespiratory function. So if they're uh, having ventilatory support, supporting the airway, supporting supplemental oxygen, bag mass ventilation, whatever it is we think is needed. Um, if magnesium hasn't been administered, administer magnesium, other um, anti-convulsant medications that are at our disposal, like midazolam or propofol, can help break a eclamptic seizure, um, controlling the hypertension, of course, and, you know, certainly a discussion about a timely delivery plan probably needs to be had at that time. Okay. That sounds great. So is there anything kind of, are there any guidelines around how to deal with hypertension? Are there any kind of hypertension bundles, like we have sepsis bundles? Uh, yes. So, um, I did want to uh, note that the um, the task force on hypertension and pregnancy from the ACOG really spells out uh, again the, blood, the aggressive blood pressure algorithm. So if anyone has not read that, that's an important read. And then um, what was just um, sorry was just released in the um, the the Green Journal, which is the. Um, the Obstetric Gynecology Journal, sorry, from August 2017, which was an article published in conjunction with the National Partnership on Maternal Safety, there are hypertension bundles, um, which is, again, a, um, a distinct set of practices or best practices that obstetricians, anesthesiologists, whomever is caring for these patients can follow to help improve outcomes for patients with uh, preeclampsia and uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So, for example, some of the components are readiness, recognition and prevention of hypertensive um, urgencies of pregnancy, a response system, and, of course, reporting. So, for example, um, some institutions may elect to adopt warning criteria. So, if a, blood, a mom's blood pressure is above 160 over 110, that may trigger a two physician at the bedside response evaluation or you know simulation protocols or for example having a hypertensive box that has your labetalol and your magnesium and calcium to antagonize magnesium toxicity these are things that are well described in this paper and i think it's useful to help care for these patients with with preeclampsia or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy okay what about aspirin prophylaxis is that something we're doing yeah, so just really briefly, that was just a really quick, uh, interesting note on this uh, way to try to prevent or be or prophylax against the development of hypertension. And the proposed mechanism is that it uh, inhibits downboxing A2 from platelets. So again, it increases that vasodilator to vasoconstrictor response that is abnormal in patients with preeclampsia. Um, there was a systematic review from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force in 2014 that found a likely benefit of low-dose aspirin in the prevention of preeclampsia um, in women at high risk risk for developing preeclampsia. So again, not your low, risk pa low to no risk patients. And the dosing, there isn't a standard dose. So it may be anywhere from 75 milligrams to 150 milligrams per day. Um, some confounding factors that um, 
kind of cloud whether this is really efficacious or not, or um, things like the patient's body habitus and the aspirin dosing, how compliant they are with aspirin, other lifestyle choices like smoking. And then interestingly, there isn't one screening modality that shows for sure which patients are high risk for developing preeclampsia. So how do you decide which of your patients are high risk? That's not actually, um, there isn't one way to do that. All right. Good. Well, that's a good good thing to keep looking into. Yep. Let's turn to the neurologic system. Yeah. What Great. are some neurologic disorders that can happen or can affect pregnancy? Right. And of course, there are um, many, but um, we'll focus on three for today. So the, the first one we'll focus on today is, is multiple sclerosis, which is common in women of, of childbearing age. So more than two-thirds of patients in the U.S. are women who are in that uh, childbearing um, stage of their life. It's a uh, progressive degenerative disease involving the myelin sheath of neurons and the CNS that's immune-mediated. And some authors suggest that there's actually a uh, protected effect during pregnancy amongst patients with MS and that some patients will actually become or have an improvement in their in their disease course, potentially, because of the downregulation of the immune system during pregnancy. Interesting. So you might actually do better during pregnancy. Potentially. Okay. Potentially. Now, I just want to clarify what you said up front. So two-thirds of patients who have MS are, are women of childbearing age. Right. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So maybe it gets better, but what are, what are we worried about if it doesn't? Yeah, so I think um, important concerns, um, again, is pregnancy going to make their disease worse, which we kind of touched base on that? Um, are the immune modulating therapies okay during pregnancy in terms of teratogenicity? And I think important for patients and anesthesiologists are things like spinal and epidurals, right, which are things that we do to their cerebral spinal fluid and to their neuraxis. Is that going to worsen their their disease, their their MS. Um, so that's going to talk about that next is, can you use a spinal anesthetic or an epidural anesthetic in parturients and multiple sclerosis? And the answer, I think generally, is they're considered pretty safe. So I would say yes. And probably our contemporary low-dose epidural analgesic techniques for labor don't really worsen the disease or cause a number of relapses. Um, there are some definitely older studies that do suggest that spinal anesthetics in particular might exacerbate the disease, but um, the results are largely not uh, producible. So again, a, a spinal or a combined spinal epidural technique is probably okay. So then the question is, well, then what does uh, what or what is associated with uh, relapses of MS during or during or after the pregnancy or worsens the disease course? And really, it's if they have a or what's is generally described is if the patients have a high disease burden before they get pregnant um, or at the time of conception, they're probably more likely to have disease relapse or worsening symptoms in the peripartum period. Jackie, let me ask you. So you know, yeah. some people out outside of obstetrics worry about placing epidurals in these patients yeah. because they worry if there's some uh, neurologic deficit post-op, it will be hard to tell. Is it just from the MS or is there, are we worried about an epidural hematoma? Correct. Is yeah. that a concern on obstetrics as well? Uh, I think it's a concern. Again, as I mentioned, because there are papers out there, depending on when they were published and what anesthetic technique they use and their dose of local anesthetic and the general clinical scenario that I think it's reason. I think it's a reasonable thing to be worried about that our anesthetic technique may adversely affect their MS. Um, however, I think some practical things you can do is, like you mentioned, take a good uh, HMP up front, really document their disease course and their neurologic findings at that time. I think it is okay. I think we should offer. A, alternative analgesic options such as um, nitrous oxide or remifentanil or uh, labor support personnel like doulas and these type of things. Um, so they don't necessarily have to have a labor epidural, for example, if they don't want one or if there are reasonable alternatives. Um, I do think, though, is my own, I guess, personal advice is if you were in a situation, for example, an urgent C-section, you either had to do a general or a spinal. And in these particular patients, I would take the, uh, I think the risk benefit of doing a spinal over a general and a pregnant patient is probably, uh, we, I would do a spinal. Okay. So... What's your basic uh, advice for people if they have a, a patient with MS? Uh, great. So, again, I think a thorough HMP, I'm discussing what we discussed here with the patient that is probably that our 
natural tightenings probably won't affect their disease, but um, other things might. Um, there are other alternative options, epidural analgesia, if they don't, if they want to avoid that altogether. But that, again, they, I think in time of extremis or emergency, that taking that chance of doing a spinal um, and potentially uh, worsen the disease, overdoing general, which we know is dangerous in pregnant patients, I would, I would do a spinal. Okay. Great. So what about, um, you mentioned some other, that we were talking about three, what's another neurologic disorder we think about in pregnancy? So another neurologic disorder, rather, um, is neurofibromatosis type 1, right? There's a type 2, which, again, I'm not going to get into for brevity. It's uh, a fairly common autosomal dominant disease, and one of the most important uh, I think aspects of this genetic disorder is that um, patients with neurofibromatosis type 1 will likely exhibit one of the phenotypic traits, which, as we know, can be uh, spinal neurofibromas. Um, so with that, I think there are a couple of things. There's, these patients, neurofibromatosis type 1 in particular during pregnancy, have increased risk of things like preeclampsia, right, um, cerebrovascular disease, preterm labor, and C-section. So we are likely as anesthesiologists going to interact with these patients. So the next question is, um, you know, should we do a neuraxial in these patients that may have spinal neurofibroma um, or possibly at risk for a spinal neurofibroma? And um, there are case reports of um, epidural hematoma in patients with neurofibromatosis type 1. So I think it is a genuine concern. And there are some authors that suggest that even patients that are asymptomatic in terms of spinal neurofibromas, they still might be present. So it probably is very... Is really prudent to have some sort of imaging around the peripartum time before a neuraxial anesthetic is performed. I do think the risk of epidural hematoma is, is pretty high unless you've ruled out that they don't have a neuraxial spinal fibroma. Okay. So you got to be very careful uh, very unless careful. you know for sure. Yeah. And the only um, way to know for sure would be imaging. Yeah. It, uh, um, yes. Okay. What else is on your mind when you get right. one of these patients? And spinal neurofibromatosis. I'm sorry, neurofibromatosis. Yeah. Um, I think that is really the main the main thing. So that's the main um, one. They're more at risk for uh, things like eclampsia, preeclampsia. So you're going to keep your eyes on that, and you got to be really careful when it comes to thinking about ep- uh, neuraxial anesthesia because of the potential for these spinal uh, fibromas. Correct. Okay. Great. And what's the third neurologic disorder? And the third neurologist we'll cover today is idiopathic intracranial hypertension, otherwise known as benign intracranial hypertension or pseudotumor, pseudotumor cerebri, um, which is an increase in intracranial pressure, really without a demonstrable etiology. So there isn't a obstructing hydrocephalus or mass that would otherwise uh, explain an increase in ICP. Um, the patients generally have things like headache and papilledema, and it's, it's really the question is there's overproduction or underabsorption uh, of CSF. Um, in pregnancy in particular, idiopathic intracranial hypertension is associated with um, obesity. The course of it is generally benign, but these patients can have um, optic nerve atrophy or blindness down the road. Um, and again, uh, just to reaffirm that those really normal CSF composition and imaging studies don't show, again, things like an obstructing hydrocephalus. Um, treatment is generally... Um, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors and serial lumbar punctures. Um, so how it interfere, sorry, interacts with pregnancy rather is um, a couple of things. So the patient's baseline headache, again associated with the increased ICP, um, can actually worsen during the labor and delivery process uh, because you get this intermittent epidural venous engorgement uh, with each contraction, and that transmits pressure on the dura to the cranium, and that can uh, temporarily worsen the headache. And the Valsalva maneuver during the expulsive phase of delivery can also exacerbate headache. So what can anesthesiologists do? And I think there's actually really interesting case reports. I want to point out case reports that some intrathecal catheters have been described not only as um, analgesic modality for labor, but also as a therapeutic way to remove some CSF from these patients to temporarily relieve their headache. So intrathecal catheters may be right, analgesic technique, an anesthetic option, but also therapy. And I, I just I think that's a very interesting and, and elegant way we can interact with, with these patients. 
Okay, great. And so important to point out that while you wouldn't want to do an LP or remove cerebral spinal fluid from a patient with a, an obstructing tumor or causing increased ICP, this is different. In this case, actually, these patients are routinely treated by having large volume uh, lumbar punctures done. Exactly. So um, right, you normally worry about increased ICP that you, uh, you know, uh, access the, the dura and you worry about that, you know, change in pressure differential and uncle herniation, which... Right. Um, there are case reports of um, brainstem herniation in patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension who are not pregnant. So that is out there. Um, but again, I think that I uh, highlight these two case reports that suggest that there was uh, really elegant care of some of these patients by removal of CSF. Great. All right. So let's move on to the respiratory system. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the most common respiratory disorders in this country, I imagine, is asthma. So how does that affect pregnancy and yeah. the presentation of pregnant women? Yeah, so um, asthma is one of the most common respiratory disorders we'll come across in pregnancy, anywhere from a 3 to 12% incidence. And interestingly, the course of asthma throughout pregnancy is pretty variable. So it has been described that maybe one-third of pregnant patients with asthma will get better, um, that one-third may get worse, and one-third kind of remain the same. Hmm. I thought it was um, kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but when asthma is poorly controlled during pregnancy, the more poorly controlled it is or the worse outcomes associated with maternal asthma, uh, which increased risk of neonatal death, low birth weight, IUGR, preeclampsia, the pregnancy uh, hypertension that we described earlier, um, and C-section and, and these type of things. Um, and really the greatest risk to the mom and to the baby is when the asthma is undertreated during pregnancy for fear of you know, exposing the mom and the baby to the traditional treatments. Okay, so um, it's okay, it's safe to give the traditional treatments. Yeah, the traditional drugs, like you know, your beta agonists, corticosteroids, um, those things are okay to do during pregnancy. And again, treating the mom really uh, positively affects the pregnancy as a, as a whole. Okay, great. What, do we, what happens if a pregnant woman has an asthma exacerbation? So one, uh, even I think uh, probably intuition is like as exacerbation, it may not be such a bad thing. And pregnancy is a very bad thing. So I always encourage my residents, the first thing is go see the patient. When you get a call, go to the bedside. Um, one of our first things, of course, we want to minimize hypoxemia and hypercarbia and al alkalosis, of course. Um, we really want to maintain our oxygen saturations above 94 and 95%. Again, as we discuss our, our beta agonists, IV critical steroids are important. Um, monitoring the baby, of course, is important because if the mom's hypoxemia is so profound that the fetus is not doing well, well then you kind of need to escalate to care, things like that. Um, uh, probably, depending on the asthma exacerbation, you know, ICU admission for close monitoring may not be a bad idea. And it's important to remember that pregnant moms, even healthy pregnant moms, have a low respiratory reserve, right, as described by decreased uh, functional residual capacity and increased O2 consumption. Um, and really, a, a, um, we need to have awareness that there's all sorts of physiology of pregnancy. So, for example, if you get a blood gas in, in this patient, a PaO2 or PaCO2, rather, in a mom of 40 is not okay, where that's acceptable for the, a non-pregnant patient. So, keeping those things in mind might give us a glimpse of how severe their um, oxygen exchange it might be. Okay. And so, do you sometimes have to intubate these patients? You sometimes do. I think the important thing about is location. So would you do it in an OR? Are you doing it in the ICU? Are you doing it in a labor room? And if so, what is your what is your equipment? What are your monitors? What's your backup plan? Are you using like a video scope or a uh, regular um, a regular blade? Do you have end tidal CO2 monitoring capabilities? These type of things. Um, induction drugs, propofol and, and ketamine are um, have been described, and you know, ketamine be useful for its vaso, I'm sorry, bronchodilatory effects. And even though succinylcholine does cause a release of histamine, the benefits of good intubating conditions versus that release of histamine is probably outweighed in pregnant patients. And it's important to remember that we should intubate these patients in a left uterine displacement position if possible. Okay. And then what if we have to do um, 
a cesarean delivery? What, yeah. what happened there? Um, so if the, these patients can labor, of course, and they should if, if the scenario is appropriate, of course, epidural analgesia reduces the work and physiologic stress of labor. So epidural analgesia is probably a really good idea. And for C-section, it really depends more um, on the severity of the disease and your technique, but epidural and spinal certainly described. Um, important thing, if you're going to do a general for example, on a patient with asthma, of course, like our inhalational agents like fluorine are nice bronchodilators, but they precipitate uterine atony. So that's something just to keep in mind. And things that help restore uterine tone, like 15-methylprostaglandin F2-alpha, otherwise known as hebenbate, otherwise known as carboprose, um, that can precipitate bronchospasm in patients with reactive airway disease. So we should avoid that in that setting of uterine atony. Great. All right. Let's move on to the renal system. Yeah. So what do we see renally with pregnant women? Right, great. So luckily, chronic kidney disease is fairly rare in pregnancy because uh, chronic kidney disease has a negative impact on fertility. As you can imagine, patients, pregnant patients with chronic kidney disease are at increased risk of things like gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, um, and adverse fetal outcomes. So we do have to keep that in mind. Um, and as with the other derangements and our other uh organ systems, it's really an imbalance between what are the physiologic demands of pregnancy and the limitations of a diseased kidney. So we know that blood volume increases during pregnancy, cardiac output increases, there's a demand for increased PRBCs, and a diseased kidney unfortunately just cannot meet or just cannot match that. And that really is where um, uh, lies the problem. Patients that are uh, very ill and on dialysis um, have a very uh, high rate of fetal mortality and there's things like uh, really one of the complications is where the dialysis access meaning on their body how often should they do it and there's um, of course large uh, or big chance for cardiovascular instability fluid shifts hypotension electrolyte abnormalities which can manifest as uh, fetal compromise so it's a very uh, tenuous uh, situation to be involved in. All right. So if we have a woman with, with chronic kidney disease who is pregnant, we've got to really be <laughs> yeah. uh, be ready for anything that might happen. Exactly. So again, I think things to keep in mind, um, right, is we really identify what are their baseline physiologic arrangements and how can we optimize that. So really volume status is very important. Are they overloaded or are they dry? From the cardiovascular standpoint, do they have an associated heart failure? Um, sort of from a respiratory standpoint, they can develop pulmonary edema if they're overloaded. From a hematologic standpoint, they often have acute and chronic anemia. They can have platelet dysfunction um, and uremia associated with renal disease. From a obstetric point of view, as we mentioned, they're at high risk for developing preeclampsia. And because they often have a baseline proteinuria, again, it's that difficult discussion of do they have preeclampsia with severe features or do they have an exacerbation of the renal disease? So do you start magnesium or not? Again, these are uh, challenging diagnostic, uh, clinically challenging, again, situations to be involved in. Um, Neurasic anesthetic, you know, should be, uh, should be used when appropriate. And again, and the important thing to keep in mind is um, what's their volume status because you're going to massively vasodilate them vasodilate somebody with a spinal and they're intravascularly depleted, that could be a, a poor situation to be involved in. Absolutely. And then the other thing I'm sure to keep in mind would be these people could have an elevated potassium level, and if you end right. up having to use succinylcholine <laughs> and, 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 and induce them for general anesthesia, obviously you need to be aware of that. Exactly. And then you know, do you use like a long-acting neuromuscular in the setting of difficult airway? So, right. So these can be very challenging patients. And really, if time warrants a, you know, kind of system-by-system system evaluation and plan would, is probably prudent. Right. And I will just say that because I just did it the other day, not for a pregnant patient, but uh, I've talked about this on another podcast, but a great option if for some reason you can't use succinylcholine like hyperkalemia mm-hmm. and either you can't or don't want to use a longer-acting neuromuscular mm-hmm. blocker like rocuronium, then uh, you can use actually a relatively high dose of uh, remifentanil and propofol. Yep. So the dose I use is four mics per kilo of remi and then wow. something between two and three milligrams per kilogram of propofol. And that gives you pretty similar intubating conditions uh, compared to sucks and propofol. So it's actually pretty reliable and avoids the whole neuromuscular blockade altogether. Yeah. Does your institution have Sugamidex? Because we are just instituting that. So 
that might be additional consideration. Yeah. I don't know what the at all is any literature about it in pregnant patients, but um, yeah, I certainly don't know that. We do have Sugamidex yeah. now. the The only issue with that is that it's in theory you're not supposed to use it in renal failure. So chronic uh. kidney disease, no problem. <laughs> but if you had a, a patient truly dialysis dependent, uh, you know, total renal failure, you're you know you're not supposed to use it at all. Now that's not to say that. You couldn't, but I'm certainly not going to recommend it, and uh, the, yeah. the guidelines would say not <laughs> well, to. So. Neither will I. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, great. Well, that's really interesting. So let's move on. I, I think the last thing we want to talk about is HIV in pregnancy. So I'm sure we could do a whole talk on just that, but what are the highlights of what you think about with that? Sure. Jackie? I think the highlights, and again, I'll refer the listeners to the ACOG Committee Opinion number 243, and I think really where our uh, piece comes in is when there's time to plan the delivery, certainly. Um, and so we just should know as healthcare providers that the uh, risk of uh, vertical transmission from the mom to the baby without antiretroviral therapy is about 25%. When you institute retroviral therapy, it goes down to 5 to 8%, and theoretically, if you have antiretroviral therapy, uh, plus a scheduled C-section to, again, try to avoid vertical transmission, um, it may reduce to somewhere as low as 2%. Um, however, if their viral load is very low, so less than 1,000 copies per ml during a vaginal delivery, again, that may uh, mirror that low rate of a 2% vertical transmission rate. So really their delivery planning, I think, is sort of where we um, can become involved. Um, however, when their viral load is greater than 1,000 copies per ml, uh, sorry, um, there's, a again, potential benefit of scheduling a C-section about the 38-week mark to reduce uh, vertical transmission. Um, however, if the viral load is high and the woman already presents in labor, has a rupture of membranes, the decision to deliver by C-section again may not be as uh, potentially beneficial, so the delivery options need to be so revisited um, at that time. Uh, sorry. If you're going to uh, start antiretroviral therapy before anticipated delivery, it should be started about three hours before the anticipated delivery time. Um, so that's an important kind of time frame to keep in mind. And I think for anesthesiologists, it's important to keep in mind that um, protease inhibitors, right, which is part of um, heart therapy, actually negatively interacts with methyl organovine, which we know is a potent uh, uterotonic. So in the setting of postpartum hemorrhage and a patient with HIV um, protease inhibitors, you probably want to avoid methogens if you get an exaggerated response. Great. That's important to know. All right. Yeah. And then, of course, we always want to be really careful anytime there's a communicable disease, such as HIV or hep C, to be very careful about needle sticks. Of course. Yeah. Um, even though you should be careful every time, certainly you yeah. want to just be aware of personal protective equipment and your institutional protocols in the event of an inadvertent needle stick injury. Absolutely. Great. All right. Jackie, this was fantastic, as always. Uh, I think we covered a lot of good stuff in a good amount of detail. Clearly, we didn't cover everything that could possibly fall in this topic, as you said. You picked and chose, uh, but I think some high-yield stuff. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. All right. Remember, you can go to the website at accrac.com where you can leave a comment if you have anything to comment on about the episode. Maybe you're an obstetrician and you are interested in uh, commenting on the obstetrician side of things. Maybe you're an OB anesthesiologist and you do things a little differently. Or maybe you do things the same and you want to kind of back up what Jackie's saying. But we all can learn from what you have to say as well if you leave a comment on the website. Also, of course, if you need to get a hold of me, you can reach me at ACCRAC at ACCRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, and even if you've already done it, please consider going to iTunes, if you haven't gone in a while, to leave a comment and a rating about the show. It really helps others find the show when they're searching for an anesthesia podcast. It'll help it come up in their search results. Also, if you are interested and willing to help with the funding for the show, consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it actually makes a big difference and helps support the making of the show. We really appreciate it. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jacqueline Galvin. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.